Now, I want to take you back in uh, this lecture into how I became a myologist. And I'm going to take you back 57 years. Indeed, I look back 60 years because 60 years ago last month, I was second in command of an army hospital ship which covered the final evacuation of Palestine uh, when the State of Israel was born. And incidentally, some of you may know that in that ship, Brian, uh, um, uh, Brian Scott, uh, who is a, an Oxford doctor, was, was the surgeon on board. But I'm going back really 57 years and showing you some very old slides because after being demobilized, I became a medical registrar and then decided on a career in neurology. But in the 19, uh, 1950, the late Professor Natras invited me with funds that he'd obtained from the then Ministry of Health to embark upon a research program into neuromuscular disease uh, because of certain experiences that he'd had personally uh, in that particular field in, uh, in seeing patients uh, over the years. And so I began by trying to identify all the patients whom I could uh, locate with neuromuscular disease in the northern region. And if I could have the first slide, please. Uh, I soon began to recognize uh, the devastating effect that muscular dystrophy, particularly the variety of the Duchenne type, no, go back one, uh, the Duchenne type had up, upon boys. Now, this is a characteristic picture of a boy with Duchenne type muscular dystrophy. And I should say in passing that Alan's book is called the Duchenne type dystrophy. Uh, but in fact, um, uh, there are others who believe that Edward Merrion, the English physician, had priority because he described uh, this disease quite comprehensively before the seminal work of Duchenne. But nevertheless, Natras and I decided that we would call this form of dystrophy Duchenne, usually occurring in young boys who had difficulty in walking from the age of three, uh, had difficulty in rising from the floor, and they showed a characteristic method of getting up from the floor by putting their hands on the floor and then their hands on the knees to rise. Most of them in a wheelchair by the time uh, they were nine or ten years of age, and many of them dying, helplessly deformed, as I discovered at that time, uh, in that kind of appalling situation, very few of them surviving beyond the age of 16 because of gross skeletal deformity and death from cardiac uh, involvement and also from respiratory function. And uh, one of the other major features, it's interesting, uh, that uh, sometimes one saw this appallingly thin long bone uh, in the humerus of a boy with Duchenne dystrophy. Uh, there were two papers in the medical literature which called this an inherited dystrophy of bone uh, occurring in association with muscular dystrophy. It was nothing of the sort. It was simply because the gross muscular weakness resulting in the bones being uh, decaying and becoming extraordinarily thin. And it was easy to see why, if these boys were not handled carefully, the fracture of these long bones could occur uh, on minimal trauma. Now, of course, we had, uh, uh, we had uh, uh, families in the Northeast showing this demonstrated uh, pattern of inheritance, transmission by, uh, uh, by females and manifestation in males. And there was one family we saw. Can you imagine the effect upon a family of having four consecutive boys, all with this particular disease, slowly but surely deteriorating, slowly but surely getting into a wheelchair, eventually reaching a stage in bed where they had to be turned several times a night, uh, the effects upon the family was devastating. And one mother, I remember saying, 
that I see my son die a little every day. Since that time, the care and management of patients with this Duchenne type of muscular dystrophy has been transformed by improved methods of rehabilitation and care, uh, which now are leading to the fact that many of these boys survive into their 20s, even into their 30s, and last, a few weeks ago, at a meeting uh, of the muscular dystrophy campaign, we saw a young man, and I say young deliberately, with Duchenne dystrophy still alive, though on respiratory support and in a me mechanized wheelchair at the age of 41. Simple methods of improved management have, been, have transformed the position. Now, of course, looking at that pedigree, it's easy to say that that uh, confirms uh, the possibility of an X-linked recessive inheritance. But uh, as it was said of the geneticists in those days, that could have been possibly uh, a, a sex-limited dominant. However, uh, I was doing with the late Dr. R. R. Race of the Medical Research Council, um, uh, doing blood group studies in a large number of families of, with boys with Duchenne dystrophy to see if we could identify linkage between the gene responsible for this disease on the one hand and the XG blood group on the other. And when I came to study this particular family, I discovered that these three boys were undoubtedly, according to their blood groups, sons of that particular mother, but this one could not be a son of that particular father, hence the dotted line, and when I mentioned this tentatively to the lady a few weeks later, she said she'd always thought it might be so, uh, and it blamed it all on an army party in the phase of the moon. <laughs> but, but in fact, the importance of this family was that here was a woman who had had affected sons by more than one male. When I showed this slide many years ago in the States, they said that kind of thing never happens over there. <laughs> but the final bit of evidence came from this particular family, which I identified in the east end of London when I was working at Queen Square. And there were all these affected boys, and here, suddenly, there was an affected female. Now, I postulated the possibility that uh, this might have been due to the fact uh, that she was uh, a carrier of the gene, but uh, that uh, she'd been affected by the disease because of mutation on the other chromosome of the pair it turned out not to be the case because, in fact, she was a case of Turner's syndrome with a single X chromosome, an XO chromosome constitution, thus finally confirming that this disease is manifest in the morphological female with a single X chromosome. And so we had absolute confirmation of the X-linked recessive inheritance. Now, as time went by uh, in Newcastle, we recognized sometimes that there were female carriers of the gene liable to pass their, the disease on to their sons who had clinical manifestations. This lady, who had two dystrophic sons, had, a, uh, had uh, one hypertrophied calf and a certain amount of weakness. In other words, she was a manifesting carrier. And this results, of course, from the uh, lionization of the X chromosome, the fact that in a, a number of mu the muscle cells, uh, as Mary Lyon postulated, that one X chromosome is inactivated so that the other active X chromosome may uh, show uh, and produce some of the manifestations of the disease. So that was interesting, that particular piece of work. We went on, of course, to study the muscle pathology. And I used to argue with Raymond Adams, who taught me muscle pathology, about this kind of picture. Because here was a biopsy taken from a preclinical case of Duchenne dystrophy, diagnosed as a result of estimating the serum creatine kinase at a very early age. 
And here in the muscle biopsy, there were clearly hyalinized fibers, which were uh, a, a hallmark of early Duchenne dystrophy in a muscle biopsy. And uh, uh, subsequently, my colleagues in Newcastle uh, looked at, the, at, at fresh muscle biopsy sections under polarized light and saw this kind of appearance in some of the muscle fibers. But then when one went on to use... Uh, 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 to look at fibers uh, which had been um, uh, mounted in, in plastic and so on, and uh, with a preparation such as this. Here were the normal striations, but there were multiple contraction bands in these muscle fibers which were clear-cut, and in transverse section, the interesting finding was this sort of appearance that uh, Fulham, uh, uh, Cullen and Fulthorpe showed very clearly, there was a completely hyalinized fiber, obviously with the contraction band cut straight through. But look at these other fibers and see these areas of hypercontraction, all of them adjacent to the sarcolemma, all of them next to the fiber membrane. Uh, and this was a striking feature which Wally Bradley and others identified uh, as Cullen and Fulthorpe had done. Uh, and they went on to look at the possibility that this particular pattern of hypercontraction in areas of these muscle fibers might be the result of the actual ingress of extracellular calcium uh, into the muscle fiber, and they postulated the possibility that there was a defect in the muscle fiber membrane which allowed calcium to get in from the extracellular space. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, not, so, not long afterwards, Andy Engel at the Mayo Clinic demonstrated what he called the delta lesion, where he found that using electron microscopy, there were holes in the muscle fiber membrane in many of these affected fibers. So that seemed to be interesting. And subsequently, uh, my colleagues, uh, Ron Pennington and others, uh, uh, agreeing that there was a plasma membrane uh, abnormality, that this resulted in elevated sarcoplasmic calcium, that it resulted in the activation of calcium-activated neutral proteases, which led, led to myofilament disassembly and eventually myofibrillar contraction and phagocytosis. In other words, it appeared that there was a defect in the muscle fiber membrane in these patients with Duchenne dystrophy, which led to this progressive process of muscle fiber breakdown. But of course, the major breakthrough came in 1987, when through the work of uh, people in many parts of the world, in Holland, in Oxford, Kay Davies, among others, and eventually with Lou Kunkel in the United States, here is the short arm of the X chromosome, where eventually, having used a whole series of markers, they identified the location of the Duchenne muscular dystrophy and Becker muscular dystrophy gene at the XP21 locus of the X chromosome. And that was followed very sharply by the finding of Eric Hoffman, Tony Monaco, and others to the effect uh, that there was a protein called dystrophin, very reasonably dystrophin, which was located in normal muscle in the muscle fiber membrane. And I'm giving you now an oversimplification of the case uh, because in the average case of Duchenne dystrophy, the same technique using the same stains showed absolutely no dystrophin staining in the muscle fiber membrane, whatever. And this confirmed, of course, that there was a defect 
in the plasma membrane of the muscle cell due to the absence of dystrophin in most, if not all, cases of Duchenne dystrophy. Now, that's a very oversimplified early tale of how things uh, went about at, uh, in those days. Uh, and it wasn't long afterwards that, uh, the, uh, that uh, it was discovered that there was an X-linked dystrophic process in the mouse, uh, which uh, was being, has been used subsequently as an important experimental animal. Uh, and later still, an Australian vet working in New York identified a dystrophic process in the red setter dog, so that here were two naturally occurring uh, dystrophinopathies uh, resembling in certain respects Duchenne muscular dystrophy that were thought to be available for use uh, in subsequent research and in trials of gene therapy. Now, of course, since that time, the, the issue has moved apace. And we perhaps have the lights on now, uh, and that's the last of the slides, because I'm now going to move on to another topic entirely, except to say that there has been a veritable explosion of knowledge over the course of the last few years, uh, that not only has work continued uh, on the actual dystrophinopathies and other related uh, uh, muscle diseases, and an enormous range of uh, neuromuscular diseases have now been shown to be due to specific genes and specific abnormalities uh, which can be identified by molecular genetics. But uh, work has begun to uh, emerge uh, on the possible means of treatment. Many years ago, Kay Davies produced a mini-construct of the dystrophin gene. The problem with the dystrophin gene is that it's one of the largest genes in uh, uh, known in human genetics, two megabases in length. But there are, uh, of course, there's clear evidence that in some cases it's not a total dystrophinopathy that causes Duchenne dystrophy, that some are due uh, to other processes. Uh, and work is now in progress, not here, not just in Oxford, but in other parts of the world, looking at whether one can use a mini-construct of the dystrophin gene with a vector to carry it into the muscle cell for gene therapy, or more particularly, whether... Uh, one can use uh, techniques uh, uh, other than, than uh, gene therapy to overcome the process. And among others, Kay Davies has worked uh, for some years on eutrophin, uh, a muscle fiber protein uh, in a membrane which is normally localized just at, at and around the neuromuscular end plate, the ending of the nerve into the muscle, to try to upregulate the eutrophin uh, to make it march along the muscle fiber and thus repair the deficiency of dystrophin. And that is uh, work which is ongoing. Just at exon skipping is another technique which has uh, been shown to be of very considerable value and importance in the management and, and in the potential therapy of Duchenne dystrophy. Now, I've used Duchenne dystrophy as an example there are a huge number of other muscle dystrophies uh, and, uh, and other neuromuscular diseases where we now know a great deal more than we did uh, in these very early days to which I have referred. But then the title of my talk is A Myologist in the House. And I want to say a little about my experience in the House of Lords in the course of the last 19 years since I became a crossbench life peer uh, and how my interest in neuromuscular disease has influenced the way in which I have tackled those uh, problems. Now, I've often said that in 1978, I achieved two lifelong ambitions. I had my first hole in one, 
Uh, I've had a second one since. And in the same year, they asked me to be captain of Bamborough Castle Golf Club in North Northumberland. And on the 3rd of January, 1979, that thunderer of the North, the Berwick on Tweed advertiser, had a large headline across his front page which said, Her Majesty's New Year's Honours List. And the lead story began, In Her Majesty's New Year's Honours, Mr George Crawford, a Tweedmouth trawler skipper, has received the OBE, and the captain of Bamborough Golf Club has been knighted, they said. <laughs> Nothing to do with medicine or neurology or any of the other things where I thought I might conceivably have made a mark. But then in uh, 1989, uh, to my astonishment, because I'd been so critical of the then government's policy on the NHS and on the universities, I received a letter from Margaret Thatcher saying, Dear Sir John, this was just, as, as the warden said, just a few weeks before I re retired from my wardenship of Green College. Um, uh, she said, um, Dear Sir John, I'm writing to you in confidence to let you know that on the occasion of the forthcoming birthday honours list, I have it in mind uh, to recommend to Her Majesty that the honour of a life barony of the United Kingdom might be conferred upon you, but before I do so, I wish to know if this would be agreeable to you. So I wrote back and said, well, if you insist. Uh, and uh, anyhow, it came about, and in 1989, uh, that year, I became Lord Walton of Detchant. Now, when I went to see Garter, as one must, he said, I'm required to discuss with you the designation of your title. He said, you may take any name, provided it has not been adopted by any other peer, or you may keep your own name. I said, well, that's easy, because when Hugh Trevor Roper, the great historian, became Lord Dacre, nobody knew who the devil he was, so I'm keeping Walton. On the assumption you'd reach that conclusion, he said, I've done some research. There's never been a Lord Walton, but there's a Lord Walton and a Lord Walston in the house, and hence it is my decision that you must add to your nomen dignitatum a geographical location. So I said, yes, in that case, it'll be Detchant. Detchant, he said, never heard of it. I said, no, it's a tiny hamlet in Northumberland where I've had a home for many, many years. Then he said, I must be satisfied it exists. <laughs> so he turned to a huge gazetteer on his desk and turned over the pages. There it was, Detchant, Northumberland, uh, population 21. And he said, I suppose it's from the French, Deschamps. I said, not at all, it's pure Anglo-Saxon. It means ditch end. So I'm Lord Walton at the end of the ditch. Now, uh, in fact... Uh, I mention this because I entered the house in October 1989. And within a few weeks, I became heavily embroiled in the first debates on the Human Fertilization and Embryology Bill at that time, a bill which, of course, uh, was based upon the work of the Warnock Committee, uh, which had been chaired by then Dame Mary Warnock, who subsequently, of course, became the Baroness Warnock. Now, I don't wish in any way to... Uh, to, uh, uh, I think, impair the sensitivity of any members of the audience who may be members of the Roman Catholic faith. But I think it is clear that from the very beginning, many of us in the House of Lords with an interest in science found ourselves in total conflict with the Roman Catholic Church on issues relating to human fertilization and embryology. Uh, I came into very close uh, contact with a great friend of mine, and I say a great friend because the Cardinal Hume, who uh, uh, was, of course, uh, uh, who was originally christened George Hume, but Basil Hume was his ecclesiastical name, his father, Sir William, uh, was Professor of Medicine in Newcastle, who uh, uh, briefly taught me when I was a medical student, 
Uh, and um, uh, Sir William Hume married a, f a French woman, which is why the children were brought up Roman Catholic. And I met Cardinal Hume on many, many occasions. We shared uh, a major interest in uh, the good fortunes of Newcastle United Football Club. And in fact, uh, when the city of Newcastle celebrated its 900th anniversary in uh, 1980, uh, that was 900 years after the Newcastle was built in 1080, uh, the City Council decided to create nine new honorary freemen. Five of them had previously been Lord Mayor, and the other four were Cardinal Hume, Colonel George Brown, one of the founders of Newcastle Breweries, Jackie Milburn, the former England and Newcastle centre forward, and myself. And in his speech of acceptance on behalf of us all, Cardinal Hume said it was the greatest day of his life. All his life, he'd been wanting to meet Jackie Milburn. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Uh, but anyhow, I mention this because, I mean, I am a Christian. I'm a, a lifelong member of the Methodist Church, but I found myself in total conflict because of the belief of the Roman Catholic Church that any work of any sort on human embryos uh, was contrary to their faith. Now, of course, uh, in many centuries ago, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas averred that life did not begin until the fetus was capable of independent existence outside the womb. But it was in the middle of the 19th century that a pope decreed that life began at the moment that the sperm entered the egg and that that fertilized ovum was, by virtue of that process, uh, tantamount to a human being and that any mechanism which destroyed or manipulated that was manipulating uh, the life of a human being. Now that's, uh, of course, quite contrary to the view that was expressed by the Warnock Committee because they concluded that it was proper to allow experiments on the human embryo after for fertilization for 14 days up to the moment at which the primitive streak appeared uh, uh, to uh, indicate the beginnings of a central nervous system. And it was for that reason that the bill in 1989-1990 uh, allowed under license from the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority uh, experiments, quotes, on the human embryo up to 14 days after fertilization. And I will say that certain Roman Catholics uh, did actually agree with this. Uh, the Reverend Professor Norman Ford, a distinguished uh, Australian uh, Roman Catholic theologian, felt that the 14-day limit was appropriate. But the great majority of people in the Catholic Church disagreed. Now, one thing that uh, was not made clear, as it might have been at that particular time, was that when you get uh, a fertilized uh, ovum, uh, you get, uh, let's say, an egg cell uh, body like that, say, uh, developing after, let us say, uh, two or three days. But then, within five days, you get something much more like this, where there are cells that are forming the membranes or the placenta. And then there is a nubbin of cells at the base called uh, the basal cell mass. And these cells around here are going to form the membranes of the placenta. And that is called a blastocyst. Now, in fact, until the blastocyst is formed, about five days after fertilization, these fertilized ova are floating free in the uterus. And it is well recognized by gynecologists, embryologists, and others that a very large number of fertilized ova failed to implant 
that only a certain number implant and that a very large number of fertilized ova are therefore discarded and flushed down the toilet. Millions of fertilized ova are flushed down the toilet every day in life. And so for the Catholic Church to say that discarding embryos or fertilized ova after fertilization is tantamount to killing a human being is something which I felt could not be accepted on the basis of this particular aspect of normal human fertilization. Uh, now, of course, one of the things that became extremely valuable and important was this. I told you about Duchenne dystrophy being an X-linked recessive disease. And any woman who is a carrier of that X-linked gene uh, is liable to pass the disease on to half her sons and half her daughters will themselves uh, be carriers. The bill that was before the House in 1989 not only allowed experiments on the human embryo up to 14 days after fertilization under license, carefully controlled, by the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority. Uh, but it was designed to do two things. To improve the treatment of infertility, the birth of so-called test tube babies, and secondly, to prevent the birth of children with inherited disease. And here at once was the situation that arose in relation to Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Because if by using the techniques of molecular genetics that had been developed after the gene had been identified, one could then identify the female carriers. Bearing in mind, of course, that an, a large number of cases nevertheless result from mutation. But let's say in a family where the disease had been known in affected boys, if you had then a, a female carrier uh, that you could, using these techniques, help to identify uh, first whether she was a carrier and then you could embark upon, uh, upon what was called pre-implantation diagnosis. Now let's be clear about what that meant. Before I say that, however, uh, I should say, of course, uh, that uh, uh, before the gene was discovered, we had only very indirect measure, methods of identifying female carriers. Very few of them showed clinical manifestations like the lady with the swollen calf, uh, that I was uh, able to uh, show in one of those photographs. Very few of them. Uh, and we were only able to identify female carriers on the basis of odds based upon things like serum creating kinase estimation. Uh, so it was a very inexact method. But once you had got uh, a powerful evidence that a woman was a carrier, uh, all that one could then suggest was that if she fell pregnant, wished to have a child, uh, you could then allow the pregnancy to proceed to, the f to the, about the 14th week and could then carry out amniocentesis, identify the sex of the unborn child, and if the child was male, to recommend abortion, but if it was female, to allow the pregnancy to, con to continue, recognizing that that nevertheless would result in the birth of people um, of, of, of more female carriers. Uh, so that these methods were very indirect. But, but then along came, uh, came not only uh, uh, amniocentesis, but chorionic cell biopsy, which meant that one could do, uh, by taking a piece of uh, chorion from the pregnant uterus, with minimal risk, one could do these, uh, this uh, sexing of the unborn child earlier at about the eighth or ninth week of pregnancy. So that became perfectly feasible. But what arose now was the possibility that if in vitro you could produce a, uh, uh, an early embryo, that one could, by microdissection, 
take out a single cell. Uh, and it was clear that from experimental work that removal of a single cell <coughs> from uh, an early embryo did not impair its subsequent development. It would be much better if you could take out a single cell from the actual part of the blastocyst uh, that was going to form the membranes and the placenta rather than the farm part that was going to form uh, the fetus and the ultimately the child. But even so, it was, became quite feasible, and among others, uh, Robert Winston at uh, University College, before he became totally taken up with television programs and so on, did a lot of uh, work on this particular field at Hammersmith, of course. I'm sorry, not University College. Um, uh, he uh, did, uh, was one of the earliest to carry out this pre-implantation diagnosis because having taken out that particular uh, fertilized uh, cell, uh, you could then identify with microdissection and with molecular biology techniques whether the gene for Duchenne dystrophy was present and if it was to allow that embryo to degenerate, as many uh, do in the course of normal human fertilization, but if it was not, to implant it uh, and to allow the pregnancy to continue. Now, in fact, that uh, technique of pre-implantation diagnosis has become increasingly feasible, increasingly sophisticated as years have gone by, and it has resulted uh, in the birth of many fewer boys with Duchenne dystrophy uh, in families where the disease was known uh, to occur. And, of course, the same technique has proved feasible in other X-linked disorders, uh, but also in things like cystic fibrosis to a degree. So these have been major and important uh, developments. But the thing which was uh, uh, wrong in retrospect with that particular bill and that particular act was that although it allowed work on the human embryo up to 14 days and a license to improve the treatment of infertility and to prevent the birth of children uh, with inherited disease. It did not allow such work and the results derived from it to be used for the treatment of human disease. Uh, and so this was, of course, a very important matter because along came the idea that from spare embryos created in the case uh, in in vitro fertilization programs, if these spare embryos could be donated, they could be used to generate stem cells, which might subsequently be manipulated by various techniques to provide kidney cells, brain cells, liver cells, pancreatic cells, and all kinds of cells for the treatment of human disease. And so in 2004, 2003, uh, the government introduced... <coughs> regulations into both Houses of Parliament to amend the 1990 Act uh, to allow the derivation of stem cells from, uh, from, um, uh, from spare embryos created in this way uh, to uh, be used with a potential of research, but ultimately, they hoped, leading to treatment of human disease. Now, these regulations passed the Commons with a large majority, but when the regulations came to the Lords, then, of course, uh, the, that very notable uh, uh, Roman Catholic uh, life peer, uh, David Alton, uh, uh, conducted a very continuous, not exactly a filibuster, but he, he, he laid down uh, an amendment, he tabled an amendment, to reject the regulations, but to establish a select committee of the House to consider all of the implications of these regulations, uh, something which would have delayed research and delayed the award of licenses for about another 12 or 18 months. 
So I put down an amendment late, uh, in the process to accept the regulations, but to establish a select committee to consider their implementation. And after midnight, his amendment was lost and mine was carried by a substantial majority so that it became possible uh, to uh, embark upon a select committee which was established under the very wise chairmanship of Richard Harris, then the Bishop of Oxford, uh, which looked at the whole question and eventually came up with total support of the idea that stem cells so derived might then be used ultimately for research and eventually perhaps for treatment. But then, of course, along came a, a lot uh, of other new developments. And in the recent Human Fertilization and Embryology Bill, um, which uh, went through the House of Lords after some very lengthy and late debates, there were a new number of new concepts were, uh, were raised. First, the number of spare embryos uh, from in vitro fertilization programs uh, for IVF programs was really rather limited. Uh, and this meant that the possible derivation of stem cells from them uh, was going to be a very lengthy and very slow process. Dolly the Sheep had been created by um, Ian Wilmot, of course, in Edinburgh. Uh, and the technique which he used of taking a, 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 a skin cell and implanting it into a, a sheep, sheep ovum was found to generate um, uh, lines of cells which could be used for the actual, for, uh, which could actually create embryos which could be used for implantation. Now let me make this clear. Um, first of all, David Alton and others gave a great deal of support in the House to the use of adult stem cells. And there is no doubt that adult stem cells have an invaluable role. The problem is, that adult stem cells obtained from human bone marrow are much less uh, pluripotential, they're much less liable to be uh, manipulated to form lines of cells of specific tissues, and even when they have been so manipulated, their life uh, cycle is, is, is limited because they are already fairly adult by the time the process begins. Even cord blood stem cells uh, are, after all, nine months more mature than stem cells derived from, new, from, from spare embryos. So, I mean, they have their place, uh, and it's important to recognize they have their place. But what has recently emerged, of course, is the idea of what has been called uh, the cybrid, or the hybrid, or, if you like, what the bill now calls it, the admixed human embryo. And the idea here is that you take a cell uh, from, a, uh, from a, cow, uh, a cow's ovum or a rabbit's ovum, you take out the nucleus, uh, and the nucleus contains, after all, 99.95% of the uh, DNA. The mitochondria with 29 genes in the cytoplasm contain something like 0.05% of the DNA. So if you then transplant into this a human cell uh, which has been uh, taken, say, from skin, uh, and uh, you will then have a cell which contains 99.95% uh, human DNA and only a minimal amount of cytoplasmic DNA from the animal. And as this cell is used to create 
gen lines of generations of stem cells, uh, then the evidence seems to be that the actual animal component degenerates progressively, though it's not absolutely certain that this is the case. But one great advantage of this is as follows. Um, if uh, you were taking uh, spare embryos, uh, which have been derived from in vitro fertilization programs, if you're taking them uh, in order uh, to uh, create uh, lines of stem cells, which ultimately may be used eventually after lots of research for the treatment of human disease, uh, then those cells will not be immunologically compatible with the actual host into whom they are implanted. And so just like any transplantation of kidneys, hearts, livers, and so on, you are then going to have to suppress the immune process for these stem cells to be able to, to, to replicate and to produce uh, a, a repair of the damaged tissues. But if you have taken the cell, say, from a human being's skin, uh, and that individual happens to be somebody suffering from Parkinson's disease uh, or Alzheimer's disease or one of the other diseases you wish to invest in, and you then put that, put the nuclei from that, put the nucleus from that cell into an animal uh, envelope, you can then create a line of stem cells which, if they were ultimately be used for the treatment of disease, would be immunologically compatible with the host into whom they are transplanted. And so that is one of the possible advantages of the admixed human embryo. Uh, but, of course, that's a long way ahead because at the moment these uh, cybrids or admixed human embryos are being used essentially to examine and to explore disease processes uh, in the uh, in the diseases from which the individuals suffer, those individuals from whom the actual cell has been removed. So that's one of the things that passed through in the House of Lords in the most recent uh, debate. Uh, and uh, it's now legal because the, the bill eventually passed the Commons with a large majority. Now, one other important issue is this. I've shown you that there is the nucleus and there are the mitochondria. The mitochondria are the uh, power-generating organelles in the cytoplasm of the cell. These uh, um, release high-energy phosphate bonds and so on, which uh, are a result which are crucially important in cellular metabolism. And I said that there are believed to be, in fact, 29, I think, mitochondrial genes have been identified. Uh, and the problem is that a large number of mutations have been shown to occur in mitochondrial genes. And they can produce the most devastating diseases, of whom I've seen many in the course of, of my professional career. Mitochondrial diseases can produce not only serious metabolic abnormalities involving the brain, the nervous system, the muscles, and so on, but can produce epilepsy, dementia, and a whole variety of different uh, conditions, and labors optic atrophy, which is, of course, a, uh, a form of progressive blindness, and so on, is a mitochondrial disorder, and there are many other mitochondrial disorders. And so my former student and uh, colleague, Doug Turnbull, in Newcastle, and his, uh, his uh, staff have been working on a technique of nutrient transplantation uh, to uh, prevent the birth of children with mitochondrial disease. And the idea then is that if you obtain a human ovum, uh, and then you can take out the, uh, the nucleus from the cell 
from the uh, from the ovum of the woman uh, who is likely to pass mitochondrial disease to her children. Oh, and let me make it clear: because there are mitochondria in the ovum, but virtually none in the sperm. All mitochondrial diseases are transmitted by the female line, and all children of women with mitochondrial mutations will suffer from these mitochondrial diseases. So all children are liable to suffer from them. They are variable in severity, but that is the case. So if you can then get a donor ovum uh, and take out the nucleus and transplant that nucleus into that cell, you then have got a cell which contains 99.5% of, uh, of the DNA of the woman uh, who's had the mitochondrial disease, but the cell will then have normal mitochondria. Uh, and therefore, uh, if that cell is then fertilized by the husband or partner's sperm, then the child that will be born without mitochondrial disease. And it is therefore a major development in preventive medicine in preventing devastating diseases. Now the bill, I'm sorry, the act as it is, because it's now received royal assent, the act uh, includes a phrase, regulations may provide. Uh, I set down an amendment uh, crossing out uh, regulations may uh, and uh, put down the amendment suggesting that a license may provide. But they knew that this was one step rather far and so they didn't accept that amendment uh, but they have agreed that they will table regulations in due course to allow this to occur. Now, Turnbull and his colleagues have gone, gone one step further because... Um, uh, what they have been able to do at the Centre for Life in Newcastle is that at the moment of fertilisation of an ovum, at the, at the two-cell stage, or, or even the one-cell stage of the fertilised ovum, you have got two pronuclei which are going to combine uh, to form a single nucleus. Uh, and they have been able to transfer this at the, transfer the pronuclei into a donor ovum. Uh, thus, uh, that means that, that, that the actual uh, cell has been already fertilized by uh, the husband's sperm, and that therefore the prospect of this being even better for the prevention of mitochondrial disease is really a very exciting one. Uh, and uh, they've achieved this in animals, and they have actually achieved it using human uh, pronuclei and human uh, uh, donor ovum. The problem, of course, is that donor ova are not easy to obtain because for any woman to be sufficiently public-spirited to donate her eggs for this kind of research does involve an invasive procedure, essentially of uh, injecting or uh, putting a, a needle up through the wall of the vagina into the ovary and, and uh, extracting cells in that way. So it's not a trivial procedure. But nevertheless, the prospect of the prevention of mitochondrial disease by this kind of research is, uh, is very exciting for the future. Well, these are just some of the things I've been involved in in the House of Lords uh, over the course of the last few years. And that's why I believe I found it quite interesting and important and exciting to be a myologist in the House. And I'm deeply grateful to you, Warden, and to Alan Emery for suggesting that I should come and give this lecture because uh, as I approach my 86th birthday, I'm constantly reminded of, uh, of what, uh, 
the late Roman Hoffenberg, Sir Raymond Hoffenberg, once said, he said, I've come to terms with my bifocals, to my dentures I'm resigned, I can live with my arthritis, but by God I miss my mind. Thank you for listening. <laughs>